welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me today is our Chief Science Officer, Dr. Brandon Roberts, for this month's research review. Today, we're going to dive into three uh, really cool topics that I think are, um, as always, extremely applicable because what we try to do with these podcasts, these research reviews, really is, is take questions we get from listeners, take questions we get from clients, take things that we see clients making mistakes with as they come on board and we dive into the research and uh, try to bring a the most evidence-based approach to these questions concerns or issues that people are facing and today we're going to dive into the repeated bout effect first and foremost so this is the idea of repeating your exercise or movements uh, on a weekly basis so when we consider periodization when we consider um, doing random things right classes that have you changing exercises too frequently um, the issue of DOMS delayed onset muscle soreness and what may cause that and really optimizing progressive overload right we have to consider the repeated bout effect which is this idea of as we do something we repeat it and we get better at it so we're going to dive into the repeated bout effect and just how important that is or is not. We're going to dive into protein overfeeding, which is a topic that uh, we have actually done a full podcast on. So we'll link that podcast and blog in the show notes of this this one. And it is with Dr. Jose Antonio, who is the leading researcher on protein overfeeding and protein in general. So um, it's linked a few times. Uh, his, his studies and his work are linked a few times in the actual blog of this podcast, which you can find by going in the description or heading over to tailoredcoachingmethod.com slash blog. Um, but we, uh, we dive into this idea of eating way more protein than uh, what is commonly prescribed. You know, most of the time when we look at research, people say you need at least 0.7 to 0.8 grams per pound of a body weight. And that's a normal amount. Um, that's quote unquote, a high protein intake, which I would disagree with. I would say a normal high intake is one gram per pound. And that's actually more common with athletes, trainers, trainees, people losing fat, so on and so forth. But what happens if we take it even further? What happens when we go to 1.2, 1.5, two grams per pound, which we don't usually recommend, but is there any issue? Does it cause problems? There's a lot of myths around how dangerous, quote unquote, protein can be. Um, and they're just that. They're myths. So we're going to dive into why they are myths, what uh, potential uh, issues or uh, precautions there may be. And then we're going to dive into the potential benefits of, of going over on your protein. And the last one we're going to dive into today is intro workout carbs, which is something I'm excited about. Um, we discuss uh, mouth, mouth rinsing, which is just taking some kind of carbohydrate uh, solution or liquid and, and swooshing it in your mouth and literally spitting it out and seeing if there's a performance increase uh, or enhancement from that, which sounds ridiculous, but uh, the reality is there actually is a benefit to it. So we're going to dive into what those benefits are, um, as well as what the mechanisms happening here are. Like why is mouth rinsing and intro workout carbohydrates as in consuming carbohydrates through liquid form as you're training like why is there a benefit here how big is that benefit and is it worth it for you to consider um, so three topics that I think are really really fascinating as well as extremely applicable to the listeners today so uh, once again, guys, this is the research review, and we do a blog version of this as well. So if you would like to see the written copy, if you would like to see the charts, the studies, the things that we're citing, all of that can be found in the same place. So you can head over to tailoredcoachingmethod.com slash blog, or you can simply click the link in the description of this episode, um, and you can find all of the research reviews we do every single month in that same place. So without any further ado, let's dive into this month's research review. All right, everybody, we have September's research review. Um, I'm here live with Dr. Brandon Roberts, the Chief Science Officer of Tailored Coaching Method. And today we have three um, 
as always, exciting topics. Uh, I think one where I'm like, the first one is going to be repeat about effect. This is one where I'm like, I think people really, really, really need to hear this because there's so many people who um, they overuse variation as, as like a, a means to make things exciting. And I think it's hurting them. Um, and I have nothing against CrossFit, but I think CrossFit's to blame for a lot of that, to be honest with you, uh, at least in, in a lot of the clients we see. Um, so I'm excited to cover that one. Uh, protein overfeeding is always a fun one. We've talked about this a little bit. So we'll link the, uh, just, uh, we'll link the podcast I did with Dr. Jose Antonio, which I'm sure will get brought up today, um, as a person, because he's known for that kind of research, but um, I'll link that in the description of this podcast because uh, we dove pretty deep into the topic with him way back, but it was like two years ago. So this is a good one to revisit because I still get questions all the time. Is it dangerous? What's too much? And, and all these different things. So um, I think this will be uh, interesting and somewhat debatable because there's a, not debatable, controversial, because there's a lot of people who um, get worked up about protein for whatever reason. Uh, and then the last topic we're going to cover today is mouth rinsing during a workout. So this is the idea that we are rinsing carbohydrates in our mouth and it's going to boost performance, which sounds very funny. If you just hear it out loud. Um, yeah. but I'm excited about this because I've always been a fan of intra-workout carbs from a more of an anecdotal perspective. And there's just not much great research that has shown me it's effective from a bodybuilding perspective. However, I've found it useful. So I'm excited to hear your take on this one. Um, and as always, it's just cool to, to cover cool studies. But I, I do, before we jump into this, um, I wanted to bring up a funny study I saw Andy Galpin share with you. I don't know if you saw it on my story, but I want to see if you read it and get your take on it. Because at first I double take, but it was, uh, I think the title was something about alligator blood uh, enhancing oh, man. muscular endurance in male yeah. athletes. Did you see this? Yeah. I saw it. It's on my like quick read list because like, I don't know how, I mean, how many people are going to have alligator blood, A, but B, like it's completely ridiculous enough to read, well, then worth reading. Um, right. So I, ha I haven't read it and I don't have a take, but it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it's different, different type of science right there. It is. So, so the study for people listening was the effects of crocodile blood supplementation on delayed onset muscle soreness. Um, and uh, it, he quoted the conclusion. It looks like 18 day, one gram per day of crocodile blood aids in the maintenance of functional performance and muscle swelling after eccentric exercise should be safe for human consumption. So, I mean, it looks like if you want to recover better, this is like the next creatine, basically. Crocodile I, blood. I don't even, I, yeah, I guess. I mean, one, so just scientifically, like one gram of blood. So blood comes out in like, microliters or you know fluid ounces if you will um so i wonder how they like condense that uh, yeah i'm definitely gonna have to read it now because because a gram of blood doesn't really make a lot of sense to me um but it would be great for a supplement so there yeah. you go I crocodile mean, supplement coming at you soon so i had one friend that responded to it and i think he's a he's a discovery channel kind of guy and he literally he said uh best immune system in the world this actually makes sense and i was like huh. So I said, I was like, really? I didn't know anything about Crocs. And then he, he saw it and never responded. So Paul, if you're listening, fucking DM me back because now I'm confused. <laughs> I'm like, is there like some legitimacy to it? Because at first I was like, this is a joke. But would there be any, have you ever heard of anything I mean, why they would want to even try something like this? No, I I, I could, no, I, I'm not even going to try. Like that's, that's just on another level. Uh, but I, again, if it works and if, other studies come back and show it works and 
you know, got to reconsider a little bit. So yeah. we'll see. I'm, I'm trying to read the, so the, the author's name, last name is Paratha Konkun. So I'm like reading it. I'm like, I wonder what, like, if this is like a cultural thing, you know, if it's and over there, this is like something that they want to look into. First thing I thought of was Charlie Sheen and Tiger Blood. Um, but uh, I would, I'll venture out to say if any, if any researcher was like, hey man, I want you to drink crocodile blood because I think it might improve your soreness and ability to train. I would do it. I mean, what do you got to lose, I guess? I mean, besides yeah. potentially disease from drinking crocodile blood, but you know. YOLO? I don't know. <laughs> so uh, I think I'm going to, like, after seeing that, one of my ideas for these podcasts was like, I think I'm going to try to come with some weird study for Brandon every single time. I'm going to find something to bring up so I can do my part of, of some kind of research review here besides just listening and giving my feedback. Um, but speaking of actual research to review, uh, let's, let's dive into the first one here. And that is, uh, what is the repeated bout effect? So, so fill us in with what you found, what it is and, and what people need to know. Yeah. Okay. So repeated bout effect is basically when you become protected against, uh, second exercise bouts, right? So you go into the gym, you say it's your first time you do like squats or something. Um, and, you get some kind of eccentric mo movement generally is what does it. You have some muscle damage. And then um, the next time you go in, it's not as bad, right? So that's body, your body basically adapting to this repeated bout. Uh, and that's like the, the simplest way to explain it. It's just a muscular adaptation. Um, and if you think about if this didn't happen, what would, what would occur? Well, every time you went in the gym, you would like literally break down your muscles and that would be bad. Uh, so adaptation is a good thing. It's also extremely well-known. Uh, the, the kind of symptoms of the repeated bout effects are basically symptoms of being sore. Uh, you have reduced state range of motion, increased creatine kinase, which is a little bit iffy. Um, and then the muscle kind of where it connects in the structural component is actually shredded or torn apart, not like completely, but there's some damage there. Um, so then obviously your body adapts and you're good to go the next time. And it's been studied for a really long time. And they kind of tried to figure out like, we're going back to the eighties. Um, if it was one component of training, so was it like the hypoxia, right? So when you exercise, your muscles don't get as much blood, but they get enough blood. Um, kind of like that pump feeling uh, generally stems from that, the metabolic kind of events. And so they thought that was part of it. Maybe the, the waste accumulation in your muscles some inflammation, things like that. Uh, then the cytoskeletal proteins that I just kind of talked about, the actual structures of your muscles. And then the neuromuscular adaptations, which is as you exercise, you learn to recruit more muscles and recruit them more efficiently. So there's a motor unit effect. Uh, and so they tried to tease these out, but they didn't get very far. Um, so I looked at the recent research and I'm just like, yeah, we kind of figured this thing out, did a dozen so or studies on it. And we're like, yeah, we don't know. So I don't know that there's going to be anything like amazing come out, but in practice, how this relates to like actual exercise, right? Is um, you go into the gym, you do exercise and it protects you, let's say in a bicep curl, right? If we wanna know if that will translate to a different type of bicep curl, maybe a, a 
I don't know, future curl, let's say. And it turns out it does. Uh, so there's a kind of holistic effect of RBE, um, which is good. So Zordos put out a study about that, that like literally had people bicep curl, had people do a different variation of curl, and it transfers very well. Uh, so we don't need to worry about having to deal with the repeat about just because we switched exercises, which is great. Um, the, it lasts, so that this protective effect lasts about six months. There's studies that tested it at like six months after training, nine months and 12 months. Uh, mostly lasted to six months. There may be some wheel room in there. Um, but once you get past that, like just taking a break from the gym, right? You're probably gonna have to re go through this adaptation. Um, so kind of to package it scientifically, and then we can get into the practice type stuff. Um, the repeat about effect occurs at the first time you exercise, your muscle adapts, and then you kind of compensate, compensate from there and go, and go on to grow muscle, get stronger and things like that. Would you say like there might not be any data or stats to correlate these, but in my mind, the way I kind of look at it is even in that example of a bicep curl, it's almost as if the more neurologically demanding an exercise is or the more skill an exercise requires, um, the higher or the, the more this repeat about effect becomes important when it comes to progressive overload, right? Because a bicep curl, if you can activate your biceps and get a good mind muscle connection with a cable curl, you can probably do the same with a dumbbell curl versus a barbell curl. And then everybody kind of has their favorite one where they feel it the most, but I mean, it's a barbell curl. However, you know, if you're really trying to get better at the bench press, I don't know if a machine press, a cable press, a kettlebell press, a dumbbell press, all those things translate to getting great or progressively overloading the barbell bench press as much as a bicep curl would because of the neurological demand. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that, that hasn't been teased out, but I, I anecdotally definitely agree, right? Like if you are doing bench press twice a week and you're like, Hey, I want to mix it up. I'm going to do a bench press once a week and a cable fly, right? Your bench press probably isn't going to go up, which means you're not going to gain muscle in your chest. Most likely. Um, so I think you mentioned CrossFit at the onset. Uh, one of the things that people kind of get lost in, and, and this repeat about effect applies a little bit, is the idea that you have to progressively overload your muscles or stress them somehow more and give them a reason to grow. So disrupting homeostasis. Uh, if you jump around exercises, it's harder to do that. Like just straight up harder to track, harder for your body to adapt. There's less chances for it to adapt, right? Even changing something like a pull-up to a lat pull-down, right? Those are very similar exercises. Um, but if you did lat pull-downs twice a week versus lat pull-down and pull-ups, you know, respectively twice a week, then you're probably going to do better with the lat pull-downs if you do them twice a week. So I think that's where people get a little lost. And it's hard when you don't like literally track your workouts. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that... Uh... A good, it's hard to, because this whole idea of adaptation is something that I think people, it's like, when is this good? When is it not? You know, because even from, from certain perspective, I've talked about, you know, people are doing cardio to lose fat. Sometimes I'm like, Hey, you don't want to adapt too much. Cause if you get really good at cardio, or if you adapt to your neat, it's less effective. It's kind of like this idea of becoming a hybrid, you become really mm -hmm. efficient. And now you're not burning as many calories. So I might not lean as much on the repeat about effect for, a cardio modality if fat loss is your goal. You know, if you're if you're an aerobic athlete, 
then hell yeah, let's do the same thing until you get great at it because your goal is to be really efficient and do it for longer. You don't want to burn in more calories. You're trying to be able to do it longer, be more efficient. Um, but with strength training, you almost want to adapt so that you can progress, uh, progressively overload more effectively. Um, and, and you, you mentioned the damage part of this too. And, and for a long time, we thought, um, muscle damage equals muscle growth. Like you had to damage the muscle. It's why everybody was always doing eccentrics and, and not that you can't do eccentrics if you want to build muscle. I think it's a great tool, but, um, this is a good point to, to get across too, because if you correlate soreness with success too much, you almost neglect this repeated bout effect because you're chasing soreness, right? And mm -hmm. then now you do something different every week to chase the soreness and you're lacking results because you're correlating so soreness or muscle damage with growth. When in reality, it's, it's probably better to do something new, get sore, but then use the repeated bout effect to get good enough at it to where soreness actually stops so that you can progressively overload it. And that's going to lead to more growth. Um, soreness might just be a proxy that like, yep, you're doing something new and you're pushing yourself hard enough. Now stay there for a while and get good at it before you change it up. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I think I've, uh, you know, over the years had to tell people like, don't chase soreness. Like it, it makes you feel good. And I totally be, you know, physique style athlete. I understand that. Um, but that doesn't mean you had a good workout. Like I can't tell you, I've worked out with lots of people, how many people with PhDs walk out and they're sore and they're like, Oh, I had such a good workout. And I'm like, what, you know, better than that. Come yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's a feeling and it's kind of like a bro mantra, but you know, don't chase the soreness. It's just a, a symptom. It's not a like sign of success. Yeah. And so here's a good practical example for people listening to. Um, I switched to a full body routine for probably like two blocks. I spent about a couple months there. And, and really the only reason it was is because like towards the end of summer, my schedule was crazy. And I knew there was going to be some weeks where like I might not get all four sessions or they wouldn't be the same days a week. And I just wanted to be sure like I got most of the work done. And if I missed a day, it wasn't like I skipped a ton of leg volume. I just skipped a little bit of everything, you know, um, but I calculated volume and made sure I was doing about the same amount of volume. Um, I got sore as soon as I went into that full body routine for the first like week. And I was doing the same amount of volume. I was lifting around the same amount of weights. The reason I got sore is because it was different. It was novel. It was changing the frequency. There was some dial that I tweaked, right? Um, and then when I shifted back because my schedule is back to normal, I'm like, okay, now I'm going to start getting back to an upper lower split. Um, I increased volume, but only in a couple places, mainly my arms. My biceps are actually legitimately sore. My rear delts are pretty sore too. This is the first week on this, or sorry, second week on this program. Um, and by the end of the week, I was pretty sore, but I could look at the metrics and go, I literally added, uh, I think it was only honestly two sets of biceps, two sets of triceps, um, and maybe two or three sets of rear delts per week. So throughout the whole week, so not a ton of volume, but it was enough to kind of just tick me up and I switched my split. Great. But now it's the end of week two. I'm not super sore not like super fresh, but if I was sore next week, I'd probably be like, I might be doing too much. Right. So you don't yeah. want to chase soreness. And a lot of that sort of came because it was something novel. I increased volume, something along those lines, changed the split. Um, I probably didn't build any extra muscle during that full body split. Cause I wasn't doing anything extra. I wasn't eating more food. I wasn't debatably even doing as much because some weeks I could only hit gym three times. But the point is, is I still got sore because it was a novelty stimulus. It was just something new and that doesn't equal um, results. Um, and I'd like your personal, not scientific opinion. I mean, you can give the scientific opinion on this too, but, um, <laughs> I enjoy not only because I'm a meathead, but also, um, even with clients, when I, when we switch up training or we enter a new block, I, I sometimes enjoy seeing a little bit of soreness 
or just that feeling of like, holy shit, that really got me because maybe we just, we added a new exercise. We like hit a new range of motion, or we found some exercises that really target the muscle that they haven't done before. I haven't done before. Um, and I actually like seeing that because it does show me that we are creating some kind of, again, new stimulus. Um, but I never want it to linger. So like week one of a new program, like, or a new split or anything like that. I actually really like seeing that soreness, but I like to see it go away after a week or so, and then be able to let the repeat about effect mitigate that going forward. Yeah. And one thing that's not, um, so I, I definitely kind of appreciate all that, but one thing that's not understudied or not, it's not studied that may be happening when we switch exercises, right. Is we may be targeting different parts of the muscle. And so, yes, the muscle is protected in general. Um, but now you have this new kind of stress on a different portion that maybe didn't adapt as much, you know, you could tweak your, your form or do something slightly different, um, and then get that soreness and then adapt to it again. So I don't think like nobody's looked at that. That probably never will. Um, but now that we know that muscle hypertrophy is like not uniform across the muscle all the time, it makes sense that this damage and adaptation would occur slightly differently depending on different parts of the muscle. So, um, the Zordo study is really good, but you know, it's just kind of the beginning because the biceps is like a small muscle too. Like yeah. if you think look at your quad or something. Yeah. Well, they, uh, I want to say Eric Helms was the one that reviewed this, but it was like, uh, I was actually just listening to it recently. Um, it was, it was like, do you only need squats was the way they, they titled it. And it's, it's like basically like squats versus squats and leg extensions or like lunges and like multiple exercises um, and total muscle hypertrophy didn't change. However, regional and specific hypertrophy did. So to kind of piggyback off your point, um, I think I see this most commonly happen in people who don't have a ton of attention to detail in programming or mess maybe aren't bodybuilding specifically. So one, one block, they might have a lot of like hip hinging focused hamstrings or even like uh, leg curls, hamstring curls with their hips in a flex position, like a seated position. And the next one, they have a lot of hips extended leg curls, like a glute ham raise or a lying leg curl, something like that. And it's like, holy shit, my hamstring is so sore. But like you said, they're placing a different amount of uh, tension in the stretch position or a different head of the hamstring so on and so forth. Um, when, uh, Chris Barricat was doing his study, uh, the, it was a bicep curl study as well. Um, basically it was like nine sets of curls. And then it was like three sets in a shoulder flex position, shoulder neutral, and then a shoulder extended. Um, we were working together. He was helping me with a photo shoot when he first started kind of playing with that idea and like starting to push that study. And I remember that influenced me a lot to really start looking at my programming and going, okay, what position are my joints in when I'm doing these, these, like hitting these muscle groups and how much volume do I have um, when like the hamstrings, for example, on like stretched based movements versus like shortened based movements and actually looking at joint angles and those kind of things and stretch shortening cycles. And you can kind of control that a little bit more. So um, that's why I think like this, this cycle, when I did experience more soreness, it was actually because I added volume because I always kind of have this check boxes of like, do I have my curls with a neutral grip, shoulder extended position, flex position, supinated grip, so on and so forth. Um, so you can control for more of those things. But a lot of people fail to do that, which it takes a lot of meticulous detail to really think about those things. Yeah, that's some uh, advanced programming who and people who like really care about like fine tuning and getting that maximal, you know, effort out of everything last drop, right? So, you know, the standard person may not eat that, but like, if you're trying to push it, you know, you, you, you want to go to that detail. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and when I program that kind of stuff for a lot of clients, I don't tell them 
half of it, you know, because a lot of times they don't care. And at the end of the day, if they need to switch it, they need to switch. It's not a big deal. Um, but like I, I typically do try to plug those things in for more advanced people without like confusing them and just like that's where. And I think this is like an appreciation for the art of programming where uh, people are like, can I just do the exercise in whatever order, depending on what's used at the gym or like, does it really matter what machine? I'm like, yes, it matters. Everything on there is for a reason. Just follow, <laughs> you know, um, but uh, nonetheless, okay. So repeated bout effect, uh, I, I guess for the listeners, like obviously any practical takeaways you have, I think we're, we can like that we haven't touched on already drop, but um, making sure they understand the importance of it. Or if, if you don't feel like it's as important um, as maybe I felt it was when I brought up this topic of discussion uh, for progressive overload, just kind of give us that so they can leave with a good, good nugget of, of information on it. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say with the repeat about effect, like, don't, don't worry about it because it's going to happen like, and it's out of your control. The only way you could get around it is if you didn't like do an exercise for six months or so. Um, so use it to your advantage. Know that like when you start doing an exercise, you're going to be sore. It should go away and you should adapt to it. Um, but it's pretty simple and I don't think it applies too much outside of the first you know week or two of training certain exercises. Do you think after looking up this stuff, uh, it confirmed the importance of repeating exercises in order to progressive overload or uh, not as important um, as we may have thought? Because I've gone back and forth on this, like to the point of you have to do it over and over again in order to progress. And then I've also seen like studies where they're like, just do a horizontal row in the eight rep range and everybody got the same result. And it's like, well, fuck, they all did different stuff every week or one group did the same row every week. Um, but yeah. yeah so- so I think, I think it's not as important as people think, or maybe we thought initially, um, because like, again, it, it, it's just that first like bout, the second bout to maybe third bout. And that's it. That's what it is. That's all it is. That's the whole like definition of just that initial adaptation. Once you get past that, like it occurred and you're, then you're going to focus on your, your progressive overload and everything like that. So maybe if you know, to stretch it a little differently or look at a different angle. It's like, don't worry so much about progressing in your first couple sessions of the same movement, but really after two to three, you should be like, okay, now I'm adapted fully. Let's go. Um, so yeah. Got it. Um, so maybe this is uh, a correct way of, of explaining my thoughts which I think might've been incorrect. Maybe I was def- almost defining it wrong. Um, in my mind, repeated bout effect was almost a way of saying this neurological adaptation that allows you to gain skill and in progressive, progressive movement needs to occur. And it's called the repeated bout effect, but really it's just a neurological adaptation. It's not necessarily the repeated bout effect. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a little bit bigger than neural. So it's that damage and the metabolic stuff too. But yeah, I think that's, that's, that's more, more correct, but also like it's okay because the other parts like you're still correct in the other aspect too it's just not to do with the rbe right right um okay cool i like that i think we hammered that one um next one of my favorite topics uh protein overfeeding i love this one because uh there's been so many i think it's less now but there's been so many myths and like fear-mongering headlines about eating too much protein. And I've never really understood why, because there's just no real, I have been unaware of data to show that it's going to kill you, cause cancer, make your kidneys fail, all these kind of things. Um, so I'm always excited when we bring this one up. Um, I'm, I also like this topic because I think a lot of people, they don't under eat protein, but they don't realize um, for some 
mechanisms we until unless you discovered them i'm unaware of but can be actually really beneficial to go quite higher than what you would expect to eat especially in some of these studies where you see people uh, the results they get and they're, they're eating way too much protein to be comfortable um and i've asked jose i've asked uh, bill campbell um now i'm gonna ask you and it's kind of like i don't really know but it works <laughs> so um what'd you find here yeah. Yeah. So it, it, I will say that I, I did not figure it out. Um, and it's kind of like a, a, a big unknown, even in the research world of, so we know that a couple things happens when you overfeed with protein specifically. Um, so let's say I'm going to use like 500 calories overfeeding with just protein. So you're at maintenance, 500 calories over with just protein probably puts you, I don't know, somewhere between 2.5 grams per kilograms over a gram per pound, um, maybe to a gram and a half per pound, somewhere in that range, right? So you're like really digging the protein. Um, and so what happens physiologically is protein's a lot different than other macronutrients, obviously. But one of the main things that's different is the thermic effect of food, right? So protein has a way higher thermic effect of food than say fat. Like fat's like 3% ish, zero, so it's zero to five. And then um, protein is like five to 15. So it's pretty much three times more thermically like activating um, or increase your body temperature, right? And if you've ever had like the meat sweats, like, you know, you know what that is, right? Like it, you're like, oh yeah, definitely too much protein there. Um, but what that does is those 500 calories that you had in protein now are kind of burnt off and so it's less calories in general, right? So that's, that's nice because it's like calories that don't count, kind of. Um, it's probably the simplest way to explain that. Uh, the other aspect of overfeeding with protein is it's very satiating, right? So you're unlikely to overeat on something else. So this holds true with dieting, but also like bulking. Right. So you're less likely if you're satiated with protein to have an extra cupcake or have some type of highly palatable food that's going to interrupt your kind of holistic nutrition or just be more of a calorie sink than like a nutrition optimization type thing. Right. So that, that helps. And that's good and bad because sometimes it, people struggle to eat, but other people like me, it's like, I see a cookie and I'm like, give me two, please. Right. Um, so that's, that's another thing that happens, um, has pretty much been shown a number of times. Um, when we, so the next, next aspect is, um, so meat, so like basically moving around, fidgeting, things like that, um, is affected with overfeeding in some people, but not others. And this is kind of part of the reason scientists think that people get obese or overweight faster than others. Uh, because some people, uh, this is independent of environment, some people just move around more when they eat more. Like they'll eat extra 500 calories and they'll just move around, fidget, do all kinds of stuff. Um, but with protein, because you have that thermic effect now, and there's some something we don't know about that allows protein to not really be stored as fat. I mean, we know biochemically about it, but it's still kind of like a, like a, it should store as fat at some point, but it, it doesn't seem to. So now if you eat overeat and you're eating overeating on protein alone, right? You can test that need effect. Say, Hey, I do move or I don't move. And you can apply it to something else. If you want to 
back off protein, but then it's just a safer way to, to test if you move more or adjust your calories, right? Um, so Dr. Antonio, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I'm just trying to think of a practical way to apply that because I'm assuming in studies, testing NEAT, they gotta have some kind of uh, uh, mechanism to attach a device of some sort to people to see what their need is, right? Because we've all had reverse diet clients who you bring their calories up and you're like, God, they just keep getting leaner. This is great. And people are like, oh, I must like just be a hyper responder. And it's like, no, you just probably have an adaptive metabolism where we increase calories. Now you're moving everywhere. You're blinking, talking, pitching. So exactly what we're talking about, but normal people have no way of tracking that. We just assume. Um, so is the only way to to see if this is you to bump protein up pretty significantly and see if you maintain weight or drop weight a little bit. Um, and then if you do, then you could switch it for carbs or fat. If you want to, the hard part would be if protein isn't stores fat, then. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's kind of like a, it, it's kind of like a, a thing I put in here and wanted to mention because it could occur, but I don't know if it applies directly to protein overfeeding. It's just a concept that, it's safer to test on a protein overfeeding versus a fat or carb. So you, you could switch it, uh, but the main way people track meat is step counts, right? But step counts is only part of it. Like you see yeah. me waving my hands around now, right? So that, that's like, I, I don't even know what portion, but probably most of it, but still there's some unknown there and, and yeah. you can't, we haven't figured out how to track it yet. Yeah. And there's, and there's, I mean, there's so many little things that you wouldn't even think of. I, I mean, off the top of my head, I would assume this when, when I'm well-fed, I get the mail every single day. When I'm not mm-hmm. well-fed, I get it once a week. Like I just, yep. I'm not walking down the street to the mailbox. <laughs> it's just not happening. Um, but quick question before you dive into the next part, just cause it's on my mind. Do you, would you say a viable option with somebody? So somebody gets done with the diet, they're not so deep into it. And so lean that we got a like recovery diet, which we've talked about before we can slowly reverse to try to keep them lean. Um, do you think they're, would be reason to go, Hey, like, because you want to stay lean, but you're really, I know you're hungry and psychologically you want to eat more. We're going to bump your protein up significantly right out the gate. So you fix that satiation key. And then as we reverse, we're just slowly bringing protein back down to a normal rate and bringing carbs up, let's say, until we get you back to where we brought your protein up calorie rise, your calories stay the same, but we just shift protein and carbs as we go to give them the satiation from hunger, but not sort of fat right away. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You could do that. I have, I've not, I've never done that, but I actually think it's been, I had one of my coaches do that to me secretly. And I, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh, that's what we did. Um, I've never done but it. it but it yeah. sounds good. could be a good tool. I mean, again, it's safer than just throwing a bunch of calories at somebody that are fat and carbs. Yeah. Um, it, it's hard because like when you're talking to clients, right, you, when they're bulking, like you want to encourage them to be okay, gaining weight. And like, this is for the good. And then you're telling them, okay, let's overfeed on protein so that you don't have as much like of the downside, but we still want you to be okay with gaining weight. So it's, yeah. it's, it's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I was more thinking too, and this would definitely be more applicable to this type of person, but um, the gen pop person who doesn't like look at this more of a sport perspective. Like I went through a year long bulk. This person is not doing that. They're coming into this. Like I lost the weight now. I just don't want to gain it back. I have no interest in building a bunch of muscle or anything like that. Um, and again, it's now that you said it. And now that I said it out loud, I'm like, that would probably work really well. And I just never, never thought about it, but yeah. And, and a lot of, a lot of studies on weight maintenance, right? So you have people who lose weight and they just want to keep it off. The two, two to three things that work the best are, high protein diets, 
lots of walking and movement, like just like very low intensity exercises, movement, um, and then staying satiated with whole foods, right? Those are the three keys to keeping your weight off um, once you figure out everything else. Um, okay, so the Antonio studies you mentioned earlier, they're from like 2014 or 13 to 16 slash 17. Uh, and what they did was he overfed these people on massive amounts of protein. So like the first study compared 4.4 grams per kilogram, which is two grams per pound of protein, right? So to double your body weight and protein, that's what you would be eating on the high side. Um, or 1.8 grams per kilogram, which is about a gram per pound, right? So, so basically one group is eating double the protein as the other. Um, and after eight weeks, so he didn't supervise this training. He just recruited people who were resistance training. So there's like a, a, a slight unknown with the, the training they were doing, but these were all like well-trained people and they were training at least four, four times a week. Uh, and what he found was the high protein group. So the double grams and body weight uh, gained more fat-free mass than the low, which is still ridiculously high protein. Uh, and they also, lost some fat, I think, in the high protein group, um, which goes to say like there's a body recomposition type effect. Um, now these these findings weren't significant statistically. So so you're kind of like, okay, maybe there's something there. And I think based on the first study, he went back and he was like, okay, let's tighten things up a little bit. Let's see if this is a true effect, which the next study he kind of did. Uh, because this time he incorporated resistance training. So he did supervised resistance training with these people, but he tweaked the dose of protein a little bit. Um, so and I get all these numbers in the blog because it's kind of hard to interpret as I'm saying, uh, but it was 2.3 grams per kilogram of body weight versus 3.4. So now we've taken that 4.4 and we said, eh, 4.4 was a lot. Let's scale it back a little bit, go to 3.4, which is a lot still. Yeah, because for people listening, 4.4 is two times your body weight, um, total body weight, not lean mass. But, and so you said uh, three point, they dropped it to 3.4, which is about like 1.5 grams per pound. Yeah, um, yeah. And the lower end was just over a gram per pound? Yep. Okay, yeah. so both groups are high protein. Right, right. Both groups are high. Um, one's just kind of really high. And so again, he found that the higher protein group did better. They gained more fat-free mass. And so now it's like, okay, they, they consistently, these high protein groups are gaining fat-free mass and either losing a little fat mass or just having a non-significant drop, um, which is good, right? They're not gaining fat mass. That's the main outcome that you're worried about, especially when you're overfeeding with protein or overfeeding in general. But um, so then the last study was a crossover study. Um, and so they did, I think it was three grams per kilogram. I don't have it in my notes. I forgot. Um, and two point something, it was 2.3 again. But anyway, they found that the same type of results. Um, and that is when you overfeed with protein around three grams per kilogram, you get this increase in fat free mass and, and no change or a very slight loss in fat mass. Um, so all those studies were basically had people at maintenance and then they just increase their protein. Um, so, so again, we don't know why this happens. I think, 
I, I don't know if he's going to do any more studies. I'm pretty sure he's not going to do any more high protein studies. So I don't think he'll be the one to figure it out. Um, but there are some other researchers who are working on it from a different perspective, from more of the obesity perspective. Um, so I, I don't know if we'll ever have an answer, but basically high protein seems to increase fat-free mass. And at, at least you don't gain fat mass at the minimum. So I think there's a few things that I would like rebuttal or ask you. Um, and I think it's all going to be hypothetical or just personal opinions because we don't know. Um, the first thing is, is the, a little bit of a question, but also um, just, I just want to hear your personal opinion, but these individuals went from maintenance into a surplus. So these individuals were literally in a surplus with protein. So um this just goes to show that protein is probably not going to store as fat. At least it's not going to, unless you're consuming an amount that we are completely unaware of, which has to be an insane amount. So I'm 170 pounds for people listening that they did a study where the 170 pound individual would be consuming 335. Is that? Yeah. 335 yeah, yeah. grams of protein oh. per day. And <laughs> on a surplus and they, they lost a little bit of body fat. So, um, no way in hell I'm doing that um, for my wife's sake. <laughs> I'll be uh, gassy as hell. But um, but basically what this shows is is um, that it, it's probably thermic or whatever. And, and you can give me your opinion of what you think it is. But uh, essentially, it's probably thermic. It probably limited um, poor adherence because people were full all the time. The other thing I want to point out is that, and I only know this because Antonio, I asked him, and I don't know if it's in the study. Um, but in order to hit this amount of protein, they had to consume a lot of protein shakes, obviously, um, which I just wanted to point out because a lot of people are so fearful of artificial sweeteners. They say like whole food protein is so much better for you. You can't, you, you can only have that. I've heard things of like, you're only, you can only have two scoops of protein per day as if it's like this rule of thumb for health. There is no rule of health. It's actually just micronized food essentially. So you're fine. Whey protein is not bad for you. Um, neither is dairy. So just pointing that out really. Um, but the main question I have after this, um, is, you know, we know that these higher, because uh, I've, I've seen Helms kind of dig into this, higher amounts of protein going above the average one gram per pound is great for muscle maintenance during a cut. And I can understand why we're elevating muscle protein synthesis. We're kind of just, it's like an insurance policy. I get that. But there's just so much research and people that say, once you go over 0.8 grams per pound, you're not getting any adherent benefit, right? And then there's a little bit that says we might want to go above that if it allows you to kind of maximize the leucine threshold per meal and muscle protein synthesis feedings. Um, but then these studies show literally kind of like as you keep climbing it up, well, they keep do gaining a little bit more muscle tissue. Why do you think that is? And do you think like, I mean, is there a viable reason for people to have considerably higher levels, even in a bulk, let's say, because these studies show that it's probably going to produce higher level muscle. Yeah. So I think there's, there's two main components that we have to think about. Um, so if you look at the acute muscle protein synthesis research, and I think we've covered this at some point, um, you maximize at like 40 grams, right? Like you get the maximum response. But if you look at the studies that do like 90 or 80 grams, it's more like you still, you get a larger response. It's just not significant. And it's not significant because they have like eight people in their study, right? If they had a hundred people in their study, it might be significant suddenly. Um, so now you're having this, what we see in the muscle protein synthesis literature as 5% increase every time, like every day for eight weeks or 16 weeks or whatever it is. So that could be part of it. 
right? Is you're actually just a little bit capping more every time. So you're actually gaining more muscle fiber size or something else in the muscle. Uh, the other aspect, I think there's something with how they're measuring um, lean mass in DEXs um, where like so, for some reason, like you see changes that are not necessarily like in your limbs or arms, but they're in your core. And so that makes me think, well, there's, I don't want to say like that your organs are enlarging because they're not, but there's something else going on there where it's just like, okay, there's more lean mass, but it's not necessarily all muscle. So that can account for, you know, a little bit of it. And then that's, that's my kind of two hypotheses on the topic. Um, it would be really cool to see, like call up Grant, ask him to do a study, um, like a four compartment model and really get at like, you know, total body water, glycogen, BIA, DEXA, you know, really look at these changes because it's hard to tell from just a DEXA. Like it's great. Like, don't get me wrong. I love DEXAs, but when you're looking at these subtle changes, it's just hard to tell if they're real. Is there any, I know that they're like uh, muscle, the ability to maintain muscle and obviously bone. Um, I assume other tissues in the body as well, as we age degradation of those things kind of increases. So it's harder. Um, is there, is there evidence to say like organ tissues, that kind of stuff degrades as we age too. And would this be a viable reason why higher protein, I know higher protein is good as we age for the muscle component and the bone. Yeah. Um, and I believe sensitivity to MPS muscle protein actually drops right as we age. Yeah. Yeah. So higher protein is probably better, but would this add to that for other organs body? Cause I gotta assume other tissues probably use protein. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm not sure with the organs, but I, I will say like everything in your body uses protein, like literally everything, right. It's so the building blocks of us, uh, it's like water and protein. And then there's a lot of other stuff, but you know, the, the protein is going to be utilized if it's needed. Like if you eat protein and your body needs it for something, it's using it. It's not going to excrete it. Um, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not completely sure on the organ thing, but I, again, it's just, it's always kind of like piqued my interest. I'm like, why is this happening? Yeah, it is. And in a good example is like, this is one of the first things I said, when somebody asked me about carnivore, like, how are these people getting lean with carnivore? I was like, well, they're eating no carbs and they're probably getting a good amount of fat, at least a normal maintenance level of fat, but they're getting astronomical levels of protein, especially because they're not tracking. So they just keep eating meat and fish and chicken and stuff like that. So they're not in a deficit because of protein and they're getting enough fats to support their hormones. So of course they're going to lose weight. And they seem like they're eating a lot. Like it just, it makes sense. Um, but like practical takeaways, uh, from this study to me, it's just like proof that you're, you're fine to eat more protein. Um, if anything, you're probably going to be better off. And typically that's why, when I have a client that's trying to lose weight or body recomp, um, obviously muscle, I think it's not that we can't use these, these figures for protein intake each day. It's just, if you're already struggling to eat enough, adding more protein just makes it harder. But, um, for most people, I really like staying at least at one gram per pound, uh, unless mm-hmm. you're obese, I think it's a different ball game, obviously. Um, cause if you're 300 pounds, but you should be 200, we can probably base this off your goal weight. Um, but upwards of 1.5 grams per pound is kind of where I keep my sweet spot anywhere in between there. And, and obviously the leaner you are and the less weight you have to lose, the higher I go on that scale, the more weight you have to lose, the closer I go to just one gram, because that's probably plenty, especially if you lose 20 pounds, now you're eating more than a gram per pound. Um, and I see fantastic results with that. People stay satiated. I can typically diet on more calories because 
they're eating more protein. So, um, and I think there's kind of like a placebo effect when they see they're like, oh, I'm, I'm eating 1800 calories. I'm losing weight, but it's really because you're eating a lot of extra protein. It yeah. mentally you're like, I'm actually not <laughs> in a huge deficit. And you're like, well, you kind of are, but, um, that kind of helps the blow. <laughs> yeah. And I'll, I'll add to the one thing. So I, I agree with all the, it's a really good tool. Um, it's also a good tool if you have people who are nervous about going into a surplus, right? Yeah. So if you're like, Hey, we're going to just bump up your protein give you 200, 300 extra calories of just protein and see how it goes. It's a great intro to like surplus or increasing calories over long-term or short-term. So that's what I've used it for before. And I've done the same to myself. Um, so outside of what you said, of course, I think that's another option. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that applies to reverse dieting. And uh, last thing I'll say on that is actually funny. Cause now that I'm thinking about it, the first person I heard say, when I go into a reverse, I bump up protein significantly, um, to help give them more food and ease into it, um, was a researcher that is actually like, it's not even in the game anymore because he like, basically, I think his name's Jacob something or Jake. He was the one that did the H and B thing and it made it seem like steroids. And it was like, he like yeah. falsified research or data or something like that. I don't know if you want to talk about that, but, um, he was the one I heard say that. And I was like, ah, that's a great idea. And then like that, like H and B thing happened and he like kind of, when I'm I, <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't, I've never met him. Um, there, there was a, you know, a, a research issue and I didn't really like look into it, but it was, there's some interesting data that came about. So I don't, yeah, I still don't know what happened to him though. He was kind of dropped off. Yeah, yeah. It was a long time ago. It was long enough to where I was like all for HMB, um, like for a sec, like I actually, I don't even know if I ever bought any, but I remember it was, it was at a point in time where I was still easily influenced. Uh, with yeah. This. So, um, okay, cool. Okay. So um, do you have anything to add to that one before I? No, I was just going to say it's the next crocodile blood, right? Yeah. Oh, I mean, it could very well be. Um, <laughs> I don't know how I, I got that one from Andy Galpin, who I will trust because he is very blunt. And uh, I would say he's, he's a hard critic when it comes to that stuff. But I don't know how much he looked into it. He might have just saw the title and shared it because it was fucking hilarious. But yeah. um, all right, uh, let's go to the last one here. We got uh, is mouth rinsing during a workout worth it? What did you find here? Yeah. So mouth rinsing, AKA carb rinsing. So just like you said at the very beginning, taking some Gatorade, swishing it around in your mouth and spitting it out like after five to 10 seconds. Um, the literature is pretty clear on this one. Uh, there is an increase in performance, especially endurance performance. Uh, usually the, the studies are less than an hour long of endurance training, you know, some kind of time trial or some kind of like mini race or something. Um, so I think straight up it's, it could be beneficial for that population. Now the, the population we could probably care a little more about is the resistant training population. And it's some studies have shown that it helps, uh, especially with high volume training. And then other studies have shown that it's not as beneficial, but those aren't, those weren't as high volume. Um, so I think there's a, some things to work out in the resistance training literature. There's also a one study that used it in people who had like been dieting and were in a deficit, which I think is the, the optimal time to use this. Uh, it, and it found some benefit with resistance training. So I think practically, I'll reverse it this time. That's what happens. And that's what I found. Um, now, physiologically, uh, it, it's kind of still unknown um, because you would think 
you have glucose drink, sugar drink, right? You drink it, it's got to be something to do with glucose, right? It gets in your blood a little bit or something and maybe gives you a little, a little perk up, right? Well, that doesn't happen. Um, and they've shown if you infuse glucose into people while they're exercising, which is a little much, um, but it doesn't really influence performance. So there's a number of studies that kind of got at this, like, what's the mechanism behind carb rinsing? And for probably a decade, couldn't figure it out. Um, so then there were some researchers who looked, started looking at the brain and the kind of neural reward centers and motivation centers of the brain. And I'm not a brain person, but they basically found that that's how it was affecting performance. It's not physiological glucose. It's like psychological reward and motivation through these receptors in our mouths that kind of feel um, the glucose uh, but send a signal like up instead of down, right, to your body. Is, um, is this the study where they did like the zero calorie like sludge stuff? Yeah. So one of the studies did use, they compared like a um, an artificial sweetener type thing versus a uh, glucose drink just to mask it. And you can, honestly, you can mask stuff pretty easy nowadays with artificial sweeteners. And they found that it wasn't the sweetness per se, it was the actual glucose in it, but it wasn't to do with kind of the normal glucose effects we would expect. Got it. Um, and there was no uh, like influence that insulin had on it. Cause my, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a while since I've like read a textbook about this kind of shit, but um, the insulin response starts in like the amylase when you're actually like breaking down in saliva. Isn't that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's, um, I don't think many of these studies actually look at the insulin side. They're more just, like, you know, in, in nutrition studies, a lot of times you'll look at glucose and insulin, whereas these studies are giving glucose. So they're like, oh, we know what's going to happen, like insulin and, and glucose wise. So we're not going to even look at it. Um, I'm sure there's one or two to have, but they kind of got lost in the pile. Um, so yeah, that, I thought that was really cool. Like, it's just like, has nothing to do with what I would expect it to have to do with. It's just yeah. all about the brain. Yeah, I remember. I remember seeing the study, and I, I think I remember it because I think I remember seeing. I don't know if it was stronger by science or mass or something, but Eric Trek. So I, I remember him talking about. It, but I don't. I didn't listen, so I didn't hear what it was actually about or the outcome of it. So that's interesting because my first thought would have been that um, because insulin can shuttle nutrients and be kind of like an anabolic process, almost like I hate saying tricking your body because that's I just hate saying that, but almost as if when you have it in your mouth and you're swirling it around that is creating an insulin response and then you spit it out. So insulin is, is using what you already have instead of what you're taking in. Cause you're not actually taking it in, in a way it yeah. kind of kicks up that insulin response without actually needing to consume anything is what I would have assumed that Malcolm yeah. was doing. Yeah. Which is not a, like a bad assumption at all, but apparently that's not, that's like not it at all. I was just like, okay, we're the brain now. I'm gonna, I'm just going to keep reading. Wow. Yeah. That is, that's wild. Um, and okay, so the other question would be with mouth rinsing specifically, mm -hmm. uh, do those, I mean, since you're not swallowing those calories, I mean, it's, it's a calorie-free way of trying to do it, right? But now, well, obviously, we don't need actual calories because you can do it with artificial. Yeah. Well, no, so you can't do it with artificial. So you do need the, the glucose in the ah. drink. But yeah, you don't really like absorb it. So if you have, I mean, if you look at Gatorade, that stuff's pretty thick with sugar nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess like 100 50 calorie drink. So avoiding drinking that, if especially if you're resistant training, you don't really need it. 
um, but still getting the benefit. Like that's awesome. Especially if you're trying to diet. Like a Gatorade zero. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you still need the glucose and maltodextrin or maltodextrin, but it would essentially be like, yeah, a Gatorade zero in terms of like what you're actually getting instead of Gatorade. Okay. Now I'm a little confused. It is. So we do need the glucose, but it's not because from my understanding, when you were saying the artificial didn't have any calories and it was, that was where the neurological component was kicking in. Right? No. Okay. So maybe, maybe I misspoke a little bit. So they compared a glucose drink to a drink that didn't have glucose, but tasted the same. That's artificial, right? Only the glucose drink caused like increased performance. Um, So you need the glucose and or maltodextrin is another one that they use a lot of times. It's not Um, what we thought. Yeah. Just not for like, like an exercise physiologist would be like, yeah, solely the glucose in the body, like what you said. And then psychologist is like, no, that's not right. Okay. So I know, uh, John Meadows used to use this one a lot. And it was like, uh, it was a study that he used in a presentation for a workshop I watched. And it was basically like, they actually showed, and it might've been a very, very small difference. Um, granted, he was pulling the study and he was referring it to advanced bodybuilders. So were they actually advanced bodybuilders in the study? Probably not, but he was saying it's more applicable to them. And it was, the idea was basically like, I want to say it was essential amino acids and dextrose or cyclic dextrin or something like that. And they did see cross-sectional growth. And I want to say it was in the quads. Um, I can't remember his purpose. I think his belief was, um, insulin as well as cortisol mitigation for, um, just let more anabolism, less uh, of a catabolic state. Um, is there any, any like research on intra-workout that shows any, uh, anything that you would maybe believe that it would be, or do you think it's this kind of same mechanism of like, well, whether you do a Gatorade or dextrose or whatever, what's really happening is this neurological thing, but it doesn't matter what carb you're taking in. Yeah. So with the, so if you go into the EAA literature, um, there's a couple of studies that tried to tease out because they originally thought back in the day that you needed, or there would be a benefit of adding carbs, just carbs to your intra workout, like protein. Turns out there's, there's not a benefit at all. Um, so I think a lot of, in that time, probably when he was like developing that, it was like in the nineties, I think early two thousands, um, there was a lot of back and forth and that people were still figuring out, but now we know that like the NPS response, the growth response can occur independent of carbs. Like it doesn't make it better. doesn't make it worse. doesn't do anything really. Um, even though the idea of like being insulinogenic makes sense, it's just not like it doesn't do like, doesn't work. Got it. Okay. Um, yeah. So, and, and even that growth probably comes down to if this is in some way helping performance, like they see in this recent study, it's probably just, well, I didn't literally grow more tissue. It's just, you worked harder because you had this. So yeah. Yeah. Um, is it worth it? Maybe if you have the extra room for calories. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think honestly, I've coached quite a few people who just like, if you work out for 90 minutes and you're like pushing your volume, like it just, you kind of just need something to keep it going. Um, but if you're dieting and every calorie counts, well then now you can just switch it around, spit it out and maybe get the same benefit. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I use it pretty often too. If I'm, if I'm like deep in a deficit, it's kind of just like, what's my priority. The only time I've ever had anybody, uh, I want to keep it in is somebody who is cutting, but like performance is the reason they're cutting. It's not cutting for physique oriented issues. Mm-hmm. 
So more than to preserve muscle, it's to preserve performance and keep them progressing. Um, which it doesn't happen often. Usually when we're dieting people, it's because they just want to look better. So it's like, Hey, spend the calories on what you want to eat, you know? And then based on the last research, I to eat extra protein to keep you satiated, maintaining muscle. Um, cool. Do you have any, do you have any, uh, final notes or, or practical applications of that one? Or is that pretty much it? That's pretty much it. Like, it's a good tool. Like if you want to try it out, honestly, you know, the, the research is kind of still iffy on the resistance training side. So it could be something where you do an experiment with yourself. Like try it for, I don't know, a block training, four week block training, see if it helps. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't help? Nah, kick it out. If you think it helps, keep going because it's super cheap and easy to do. Yeah. hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. Um, well, great. That wraps it up. That was a great research review. Um, a little bit longer than normal, which I love. We, we dove deep into a lot of those. This was awesome. Um, guys, as always, this will be on the blog as well. So as you're listening to this, you can click the link in the description. You can check that out and see all that Brandon put together. Cause there's always even more info and facts and studies and links in those. Um, share this on Instagram, tag us both. Our handles are going to be in the description as well. And last but not least, if you have other topics you want us to dive into for research reviews, topics for the series that I'm doing, Q and A's, anything, there is a a question box. You can click it. It says, ask boom, boom, click that. It'll take you to form, drop any topic for us. And we will dive into that, um, on the next one. Thanks for listening. 